0: four, Hello and welcome to LaunchPod. I'm Vanessa. LaunchPod is dedicated to presenting emerging fields in the space industry and ways you can get involved. This week, Sean and I interviewed Dr. Alice Gorman. Her field: Space Archaeology. Sean takes up the story.
1: I'm constantly fascinated by the way that people can take two disparate fields and cross-pollinate them in order to make a whole new field for themselves. Like, take this person
0: for instance. Her name is... Dr. Alice Gorman. I am a lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at Flinders University.
1: Alice has taken her field of archaeology and combined it with her love of space to create a whole new discipline for herself.
0: Space archaeology is the study of the material culture of space exploration. So rockets, satellites, spacecraft, launch sites, tracking stations, antennas. It's basically taking the techniques and the methodologies of archaeology, which contrary to what most people think, isn't just about the past. It's also about the present and sometimes the future, looking at the material culture, the objects and the places. So it's taking all of that Um, archaeological approach and applying it to things associated with space exploration to see what kind of interesting questions we can answer when we do that.
1: Now, for Alice, as for a lot of people in this particular industry, uh, her love of space came from an early age.
0: For as long as I can remember, I think almost since I first learnt to read, I found space just absolutely fascinating. And as a child, I read a, an enormous amount of science fiction. But I suppose I never had dreams of becoming an astronaut because it was fairly clear to me from a young age that that wasn't something girls were allowed to do. Huh. So while I was very um, very interested in space, I didn't necessarily see it as a career path as a, as a student. And at some point also, I got hijacked by archaeology. So I kind of combined <laughs> the the space... Well, the science side of my life, like I did, you know, full on sciences um, uh, up to to the end of high school and I did astronomy in my first year of an arts degree at um, Melbourne University. I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist at some point, but I kept the, the hard science thing going. And of course, you know, um, people think that to be an archaeologist, you need to do ancient history. Actually, you don't. If you want to be an archaeologist, I recommend to anyone listening to this, go out there and do chemistry and physics and um, geology if you can, because these are really the skills you need.
1: All that was required now was a moment, a a moment where the two disparate fields could come together in Alice's mind, which for Alice was?
0: I was working as um, a heritage consultant, working on Aboriginal heritage in Queensland, and there was an actual moment there was a moment where after the end of a really hard day's work in the field so i was in queensland it was very hot we, you know we were we were we'd come home at the end of days in the field very very tired and this moment was when i um i took a beer from the fridge and went out onto my veranda to just sit in the evening and look up at the sky and then i had this revelation i i thought here i am looking at the heritage of, of the um, Aboriginal groups who lived in this part of Queensland. But what about the heritage of up in space? What about satellites? What about orbital debris? Does this stuff have any heritage value? Is it important to us in any way? And that was it. That was it. I I realised that I had somehow brought those that other former part of my life back online, like the... the all of that interest in in space and astronomy and all of those things suddenly came back into my archaeological world
1: so Alice found herself sort of at the start of an emerging zeitgeist of space archaeology, and this particular discipline she 's been able to integrate into her day to day role at Flinders University.
0: One thing I do is that I try and work it into everything that I teach the students so um, in my teaching role i 'm using Things like rockets and launch sites as ways of demonstrating what it is that archaeology is all about when i've got my my sort of reset search hat on um, I'm often puddling about in archives, looking for documents and plans that relate to the history of a particular spacecraft or a space site, and sometimes not often enough, unfortunately sometimes i get actually go out into the field and do archaeological surveys at places like uh, the Auroral Valley tracking Station in the aCT is one place where i 've been working recently so so I actually go out and walk across the ground um, record different kinds of structures and features that are present at, at some place that is associated with space exploration and sometimes talk to people and get their stories and their views about that particular place. So archaeology, while it's very much about material culture, physical objects and and things, it's also about people's knowledge and attitudes and views, the things that they think think are important.
1: Now in classical archaeology, an archaeologist would typically scour a site looking for clues or little pieces of evidence that would help build up a larger story. And in Alice's case, she's found one particular item that has really piqued her interest.
0: Well, cable ties, they're interesting, aren't they? They're they're everywhere. We use them for 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 tying together um, broken teacup handles or fixing <laughs> posters to lampposts or or tying things onto the back of our truck. Cable ties are everywhere. Yeah. Um but something I didn't realise until I went to the Auroral Valley NASA tracking station, which is is no longer operational, it's just ruins effectively, um, I didn't realize how important these little bits of plastic are to the functioning of the space industry today. So... (laughs) <laughs> i'd been i'd been looking at things like the antennas that you find at tracking stations so so huge twenty six meter dishes like massive monumental structures that are full of cables the cables have to um, carry data and information and and power as well. So information is whizzing back and forth between the spacecraft in orbit, which sends a signal to the antenna, which takes that signal and sends it through a number of processing units into a control room where someone decodes it on a computer and sends it out to someone else. And so for all of this, you need cables. And until I was out at Aurora Valley, something that had never occurred to me was that if you have cables, you have cable ties. (laughs) So suddenly... (laughs) We found like so many of them out there and yes. and you know we we just think of them as a bit of a bit of plastic, but when you start looking at them, they're very, very diverse they're different colors, sizes, widths, shapes, they've got different patterns on them so even though at a place like aurora Valley the the antennas that we use to communicate with the spacecraft aren't there anymore so I can't study them as an archaeologist. I can't go and look at that antenna to figure out the very particular interesting things about its functioning. But the cable ties tell part of the story. The cable's aren't there, the antennas are there, but the cable ties are still floating around on the ground. And I can use them to get information that not only tells me about the technology, but also tells me about what people were doing. How people use these little bits of plastic, how they were discarded, and how they end up where we see them now. So I find them fascinating. Have you been able to date a cable tie at all? Like, that's not something I have ever considered or thought was important. <laughs> It is possible to date them. We know that they, the, the plastic ones that we are so familiar with today were first invented in 1958. And the, the recent version, which is so common now, was 10 years later, 1968. So we know, we know when they started. They have uh, manufacturer's marks and different features that, that do actually allow you to put them into a chronological time frame ones that are used for specific things in aerospace industry have to be made out of very particular materials, and uh, some of these are patented materials as well that are only made by certain manufacturers so if that manufacturer's mark is on that cable tie then then you can you you know that it's probably one of these very very precise substances but of course, the cable ties that you buy for two dollars down in the bargain shop are most likely not made out of these very very precise substances and they often won't have any manufacturer's marks on them either. So there's there's all of this interesting information encoded in them. So you can tell a lot about, we can tell where they were made, um, who made them and within a certain date range as well. And because they're all different sizes, so a very long and thick wide cable tie, say, you know, a centimetre wide, will have been designed to carry a specific load. So even though the thing it was once holding doesn't exist anymore, the cable tie still tells us something about what it was doing, what its function was.
1: These things are just scattered all over the ground. How, how do they end up where, where you now currently find them?
0: Well, not all over the ground. They're, they're scattered over the ground in a very pattern-specific way. So where we see them out there is usually near where some of the antenna structures were, the places they've ended up seem to be related to wind direction. So if you, once you take one off, they're quite light. So some of the concentrations of cable ties seem to be related to a specific activity. For example, um, the main 26-metre dish at Aurora Valley, when the tracking station was decommissioned, it was dismantled and sent to Tasmania to the Mount Pleasant Observatory, which is a thought I love as well, the sort of recycling of space, infrastructure into the scientific community and back but that's another story. So at some point they had to take dismantle it and take all the cables out and so just sort of downwind from the antenna footing there's a massive concentration of cable ties and I haven't done the work on this yet but I am fairly sure these cable ties relate to the dismantling of the antenna in 1986. So I should be able to determine if that's the case or not by checking out some of the patent marks and other marks on the cable ties.
1: Now the love of cable ties aside, Alice has found that her field has gained new profile over the last few years as more nations are starting to turn their eyes towards space and actually plan trips to where other nations have already been. You see, there are already sites on bodies in our solar system that already have archaeological significance to nations on Earth. Take, for instance, the tranquility base on the moon
0: the remoteness is something that protects it, but actually, there are people who are planning to go there, so um, there's a competition which which is for whoever gets to the moon if it to, to bring back artifacts from tranquility base and other landing sites and China um, India, also possibly the, the Russia are all planning to go back to the moon NASA released some guidelines um, just last year, um, setting up buffer zones around some of these landing sites. So it's actually, it's it's a bit more of a pressing issue than you might expect it to be. And it won't be, of course, until somebody actually, you know, walks over Neil Armstrong's footprints on Tranquility Base in order to tear a bit off the, the descent module and bring it back and, and people realise exactly what has been lost. It's probably not going to be taken as seriously as we'd, li- as we'd like. But NASA... NASA has put out these guidelines about – they're about ranger, surveyor and Apollo landing sites um, on the moon. And there is starting to be a general awareness that um, it might be good not to just assume these are like, um, you know, sites where anyone can go and just souvenir or rip things off. So, yeah, it's actually – and, of course, there's international – um, precedents and protocols here too. So if someone goes up to Tranquility Base and takes away a whole lot of artefacts, what precedent does that set for how people treat the space sites and assets of other nations actually in space on the surface of planetary bodies? So Would those that... artefacts belong to the US government? Yes, they do actually belong to the US government under the terms of the Outer Space Treaty. Um, but prosecuting those kinds of things would be the tricky thing. So for example, if somebody bought if somebody went to the moon and took a piece of tranquility base back and put it on eBay, easy prosecution case. So um but but there are private markets for things like this as well. So so there's a whole in, it's very similar actually to some of the issues that you find, you know, in places like like Iraq and Egypt around looting of antiquities and the the ethical issues and the revenue issues and all of those things. It's it's quite an interesting field in itself. That's all for LaunchPod this week. More information can be found on our website, launchpod.net. Our thanks to Dr Alice Gorman, who, incidentally, if given the opportunity to launch anything into space, would send a little cardboard and aluminium foil satellite that I have made called Dr Space Junk Sat, (laughs) And um, I don't have... I, I consider that it is currently in orbit. Its orbit is just of a very, very... of zero altitude. So
1: this, this satellite is currently in a geosynchronous orbit above your desk. <laughs>
0: yes. Um, in, Adelaide. in Adelaide. In Adelaide, yes. That's where, it's, that's where it's currently orbiting. Its apogee and its perigee are more or less the same. I put it to you that we do not yet understand enough about the effects of the space environment on cardboard... And silver paper. So the experimental virtues of this satellite could be vast. Uh, yeah. uh.